Minnesota Teen Challenge. Adult Minnesota Teen Challenge is an addiction recovery group that is nationwide. And we have the situation of having a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And in my first Wednesday night there, we had a whopping 12 people in attendance at church. I'm thinking, okay, well, here we go. I, I knew there was a reason for coming, and a lot of it related to COVID and the scares connected to that and those that were concerned about coming in the evenings to church on Wednesday night. And I heard from one of our deacons that Adult and Teen Challenge is interested in sending a group of 40 to 50 guys every Wednesday night to a church. If you take them, we'll send them. I said, amen, absolutely, let's take them. And so they started sending them. And it was from that group that we saw uh, the group grow from 12 to now we're running around 110 on a Wednesday night. And, and that is because of the family and friends of the guys that are in the program. They'll be there for like four months, required to be there. Family and friends will come visit them. And then a new house will come. And so it's, it's an amazing ministry. And from that came the word that Family Baptist Church is the church where you can actually be yourself, transparent about your problems and your struggles with addiction, and joyfully transformed by the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, every church wants to say that, and, and I know this church would say that as well, and I'm excited to hear words of movement in that very type of ministry through PBC. Super excited to hear about that. But what we've seen from that would be some of, I want to just give you a quick overview of some of our new members that have joined up at Family Baptist. Heather and I were out for coffee with a couple that wanted to join, and I just asked that natural question, so how'd you guys meet? And she looks at me and says, well, and with a straight face, without meaning to make any joke at all, he was my drug dealer. And I wanted to like pick up my jaw and push it back, but I didn't. I, didn't. I don't think my jaw dropped. She was dead serious. Okay, all right. He was like, yeah, I dealt drugs to her for quite a while. And then, uh, so what happened? Well, I had to go to treatment, and, um, and then God saved me in treatment, and um, he's transforming our marriage, and, and they are a tremendous blessing to our church ministry. That's just the first couple. Second couple, um, the guy, he, I said, so how did you, you know, how'd you guys meet? And they told me their story, and he said, well, Pastor Jason, I used to hang out in that house right on the corner of the, of the church, and I was high on meth, and they called me a meth head. And, and actually, he's, he's probably in his late 40s, and he looks like a guy that has recovered from it and yet is very on fire for Jesus. And they have a desire to, and they're, they're rehabbing a bus so they could travel when there's hurricanes and things with their family, he and his wife, to go help out wherever he could uh, be of use. He's really good with his hands mechanically and helping rehab homes and then share the gospel. And so I said, well, where are you doing that out of? I mean, if you, he goes, that's what God wants us to do. I said, what church are you connected with? He said, we're not. I said, well, you got to do it at your own home church before you're going to go out and do it abroad because the local church is super important. He said, that's a great idea. Would you be open to us coming? I said, absolutely. And then an, another couple, um, the background, we're looking forward to baptizing the husband in just a couple weeks. But they met at, um, well, I'll skip how they met, but uh, I can tell you this, that they were homeless for many, many years, living in the ditches of Minneapolis. And God is doing a work. But it's not just there. Then this single lady comes up who talks about her missions background and her family, mom and dad, 
uh, were in the medical field. Dad's a doctor, mom's a nurse practitioner, and left all of that to pursue ministry, and it had a huge impact on her life. And she was talking about how that has impacted her, and she just wants to be used of God. And so we have a collection of those that are there on mission to be a part of what's going on, and those that are saying, I can have a second shot at this? Absolutely, the gospel gives that to you. If you're here today and you're struggling with some form of addiction, which I know when we say the word addiction, it sounds scary or it sounds like something you don't want to identify with, but if it is a life-besetting sin, it's something that you continue to struggle with, you can't seem to break free from it, I've got good news for you. We're going to see how the gospel transforms that. And we're going to see the perfect leader, Jesus Christ, as the one who guides us. And so even as I say those things, you might think that's something I already know. I understand, but I hope that you'll come along with me as we dive into an overview of the book of Judges. So take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Judges. And you'll see in the book of Judges an overview of God doing something absolutely astounding in the lives of his people. Now, the book of Judges is one that's set against the backdrop of a book of victory. So the book of Joshua is all about military conquest and God's people conquering those that were supposed to be conquered. And Joshua, he's one who's encouraging them, keep following hard after God. But what ends up happening is the book of Judges covers a 300-year period, and it is a time of decline. And it's not surprising to me that we are where we are as a nation. We're not quite 300 years old, but the nation of Israel in a 300-year period took a deep decline, and it happened really, really fast. It can happen in all of our lives, and I think that as we consider the book of Judges, we're going to see lessons that apply to us. So if you have your your, uh, Bible open to Judges 2, now I'm going to ask you to turn to one other place. Okay, so it's intentional because we're going to land back in Judges 2. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. So I just want to give you simple justification for where we're going together in the reason for looking at an Old Testament book, like the book of Judges. Like, what's the point of that? We'll see. But I want you to see what Paul says about the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. How many of the most of them didn't make it into the promised land from the original group of three million or so? The only number, think about this, out of the three or four million, or if you want to go down to two million, I don't care. It's all a guess anyway. Only two of the originals made it in, Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses made it in. So God is saying through Paul, with most of you, you think you've got it, but the thing is, you don't. And I want to to caution you about this. And he says, I want to remind you of the Old Testament because look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. Paul is, is writing this letter to the church of Corinth, and he's saying what happened in the Old Testament happened so that we, God's people in the church, would learn that we might not desire evil as they did. And it goes on to describe the kind of evil they desired. Look down at verse 11. 
If you didn't hear that this was all as examples for us, see it again. It says in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Not only are they examples, they're instructions for us to help us take action steps forward on whom the God of the ages, the end of the ages has come. But our challenge is, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the challenge. I'm going to, and we're going to walk through a book of the Bible in the allotted time that I've been given, in one part. So here we go. In doing that, I want you to know that this is on purpose because the Old Testament was written for our admonition. It is historical fact. It wasn't a story, a myth, so that we could use in a way that benefits us. It's actually real history that happened with a real purpose to really impact us. But you need to start by being open to saying, I don't have it all together. Don't think that I'm talking past you towards one of those couples I mentioned that attend Family Baptist Church. I'm actually talking to you, hopefully empowered by the Spirit of God, and I'm saying to you, take heed lest you fall. But I do have good news for you. It's in verse 13. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with each temptation also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And that's what we're going to look for, the way of escape. So turn back over to Judges with me. And let's just look together at this brief overview of the book of Judges. If you look at the Old Testament in general, you'll see the Pentateuch, you'll see the historical books, the poetical books, and the prophetic books. That's just classifications for all of the Old Testament, the 39 books. And what I find as I look here, it's all pointing us to the perfect leader. So the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's the picture of the perfect leader. And then we see the absence of the perfect leader in the historical books. Then the poetical books, the longing for a perfect leader. And then the prophetic books, the promise of the perfect leader. Our focus is right in the middle here on emphasizing the absence of the perfect leader. I know all of us have views of what good leadership is like. You have an expert in leadership, one of your pastors who teaches on this, Pastor Ken. He teaches on the leadership principles. I've gone through his class and enjoyed greatly what he has to share, and I encourage you to jump in on that class and learn from that. But what we find out is that there isn't on this earth, apart from Jesus Christ, a perfect leader. If you put your hope in any man, he guarantee will let you down. I don't care who it is. And I'm saying that right now in front of you. The excuse that some of you have that I'm not going to church because it's full of hypocrites who are led by hypocrites, you also are a hypocrite. Because you also struggle with the same things, the consistency, the integrity. We all just need to be yielded to the Spirit of God. But this book helps us understand that. The message of this book is very simply that God here, God's people repeatedly fail him. And maybe you feel that way in your own life where you constantly fall into the same patterns of sin, yet he remains faithful to them. How do they fail him? Well, they fail him in so many different specific ways. A couple that I'd give you would be they compromise. They compromise in areas of intermarriage. Um, Garrett even mentioned some of those when he talked to the kids. They compromised in immorality. Uh, they were, the, the type of immorality mentioned in this book 
is intense. There's one scene where it talks about rape and then the cutting apart of the body of the one who was raped, the concubine, and sent throughout all of Israel. I mean, this is horrific, very direct stuff. There's idolatry that's mentioned. Even at the end of the book, we have Micah and the Danites, and there's this violent disunity that takes place. They repeatedly fail him. But I think one of the greatest points of failure that we see throughout this book is in chapter 2, we see, turn back over to 1 of, of Judges, Judges 1, verse 27. I just want you to notice a pattern. Why, how do they fail? It says in 127, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages. And go down to verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. And you start to see a pattern. They didn't drive out. They didn't drive out. They didn't drive out. What's the point? When we go in half-hearted into our pursuit of Jesus, it doesn't work. We need to be 100% in. Like, I believe that Jesus can change my life, period. Not, I'm going to kind of give this a try. It's I'm all in. Because if you're not all in, you're going to struggle, and you're going to repeatedly fail him, but God never leaves you. He remains faithful to you. There's testimony after testimony after testimony of some of these men and women who have gone through addictions who would say in the midst of their deepest moments, they always knew God has not left them. God wants them. God's pursuing them. And that may be you hearing me right now where you're struggling big time, but the reason why you're confused is you can't quite shake what you're doing, but you know God still wants something from you. It's because he hasn't left you, and he loves you, and he's, I'm giving you, God's giving you a chance through me saying, come back to him today. We'll notice all, uh, the outline. Okay, now that is not super exciting, but it's important for us to see, right? The outline is this introduction to the book. Our scripture reading for today is in chapter 2, which talks about this pattern and this cycle of failure. And then in the middle, you'll see examples of judges. These judges are ones that would come on the scene and they would come up and step up and conquer the people that were suppressing God's people. And you have all sorts of accounts. Uh, some that aren't so familiar would be Othniel. But then we get to Ehud. Now we're starting to think about the left-handed guy who thrust his dagger into the belly of this rather large king, Eglon. And it's an, a memorable story. He even, like, what happened to my blade? It's gone. That's how big this guy was. Um, and you have Deborah and Barak. And, and what's going on with Deborah and Barak? Well, Deborah didn't really want to lead, but because no other man is stepping up to the plate, showing an absence of leadership, she's like, okay, I'll do it. But you've got to come with me. And then if you get the idea of Samson, we usually picture Samson as this muscle-bound guy who puts his hands on each side of those pillars and just crushes those pillars, and all of the foundation falls down, 3,000 on the Philistines, right? We think about that? But actually, I would suggest to you that Samson was probably not muscle-bound, but probably around eh, 5'2", really skinny, with long, thin hair. You're like, why do you picture him that way? Because of this fact that really this book is all about God and what God does through the people he chooses. 
Okay, so now I am speculating as to what Samson looked like. I have no idea what he looked like. But I'm saying to you, it is all about theocratic anointing, the anointing of the Spirit, God's Spirit coming on particular people for particular purposes and doing amazing things. And so when Samson wipes out all these people or grabs a jawbone of a donkey and wipes out a thousand people at one time or catches a group of foxes and lights them on tail and they destroy, wreak havoc all over the, the land. This is because God is doing an amazing thing. This same spirit of God is available to all of us today. The book ends with this epilogue about Micah and the Danites and that's a very interesting section. And I just wanted you to see that simple outline so you know kind of where we're going. This is the summary passage. We've actually looked at it in our scripture reading. Look at it just one more time with me. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So God is raising up judges. Yet it says, they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them, They soon turned aside from their way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whosoever the judge, or whensoever the judge died, they They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Man, i got to get some new glasses. Okay, so here's just some simple thoughts for you to think about. I want you today to, number one, if you're saying, what is the point of his sermon? Okay, let me remind you. I took you to the New Testament to say that I'm taking you to the Old Testament because what happened in historical fact was written for our admonition, for our instruction. I'm trying to help you understand how you can get set free from the chains and the bondage of addiction. And if you're still going, like, how does this all work? If you have a copy of the ESV, the overview of the book of Judges actually contains a snapshot of my outline. I didn't get my outline from that, but it happened to work out perfectly. Okay, so if you want to go back and review, go back and review. It gives the time frame of how long the book was written, and it goes on to talk about a particular cycle that happens. I want to help you today identify the cycle of sin, know what contributes to that cycle, and figure out how to break that cycle. So here we go. First one, identifying the cycle. The cycle of sin that takes place in the book of Judges looks just like this. A sin is committed... There is servitude, and they're brought under subjection by one of the foreign nations that they failed to drive out and conquer. And so this happens in our own lives when we know we have an issue, but we don't go after it and radically amputate it. We kind of play around with it, and it will kind of rear its ugly head again. Then there's this cry, and in alliterated fashion, it's supplication. It's this crying out to God, I am so overwhelmed with my situation. I need your help. And then God sends salvation. And that salvation comes through the judges. But what we end up seeing is that the arrow continues, and that's the problem because there's sin. Now, that white box is supposed to contain 
Judges 2, 16 through 19. But take your Bible in the book of Judges and consider this just quickly illustrated through the life of Gideon. Book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. All I'm emphasizing here, sin took place. Where does servitude happen? Servitude happens just in this very next verse, in verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So they were under the subjugation of the Midianites. They were servants. They were hiding out. They were scared. So when do they cry out to God? Well, we see in the same text, they cry out to God in verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out to help from the Lord. And I've heard testimony after testimony experience myself as I struggle through life-besetting sin where I'm overwhelmed by it, I feel slave to it, and I finally break God, I know you're real. God, I'm crying out to you. Will you please help me? I have found in the time of just over a year in Minneapolis, so many people with so many needs come to the church and they ask for help and handouts. I realize that I can only help someone who's been overtaken in a fault. That means in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, You who are spiritual, help someone who's overtaken. I can't just have someone with a problem, with a sign that says, we'll work for food. That's not enough. It's got to be someone who is at the end of themselves saying, I need Jesus. Just two Wednesdays ago, a guy came early to our Wednesday prayer service, and I was unlocking the building and getting all ready, and he was there. His name's Mike. I said, Mike, what brings you here this early? He goes, I just got out of prison this morning. I was like, great, come on in. He said, what's, go, what's, what's up? Why were you in prison? He goes, well, you know, there's like this assault thing. I was just drunk. And I said, well, how can I help you? And he just starts bawling. He's like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just tired of this. The same Mike has been coming to church for the last four months, and we've been sharing the gospel with him. He's been saying to us, yeah, I get it, but there's just something that's keeping me from embracing Jesus as the answer. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You keep talking about Jesus. I just don't get it. Now he's saying, I think I get it. I think I, think I have no other option. So, so as a, a, you know, a good pastor, I'm saying, now look, Mike, look, check this out. You cannot just come to Jesus in order for your life to come together. Like if you're coming to Jesus as this, he will fix my problems sort of way, he will ultimately, in the end, fix your problems. You'll be with him in heaven, and that's awesome. But if you're sitting here thinking, I'm going to do that so that he then blesses me in turn right now, I cannot guarantee that. In fact, you might still go to prison, you might still be homeless, you might still have a huge problem supporting your seven kids. Because I know that, I understand that. Would you like to come to Jesus right now? Yes. I said, okay. Talk to him. No, man, I don't know. What are you talking about? Like, can you, like, isn't there something you can say that I repeat? You know, <laughs> like, I don't do that, man. I flat out, I just don't do that. You're, God is real just like I'm real standing in front of you. Why don't you talk to him and share what's going on in your heart? And I did leave out the fact that, again, I, I said this to you. I walk through the simple truth of the gospel. You have to admit that you're a sinner. 
We all have to start there. Believe that Jesus died in your place and he rose again and confess and call out to him. So I'd shared that with him before. So I don't want you to think I'm cold and callous. Like, no, man, I, don't, I, I want him to come to Christ. Like, I'm like, you know what you need to do. And so he just lifted up his voice and just weeping gave his life to Christ. It was so awesome. PowerPoint wasn't ready. Music wasn't ready. I didn't care. Someone came to Jesus. You may be here today where you're at the end of yourself and you need an answer. That answer is Jesus. So back to Gideon. Okay, Gideon is just an illustration. Salvation comes through Gideon. A lot could be said here. Suffice it to say, Gideon was a faithless guy. He's kind of a wimp because God clearly says, I want to use you to set Israel free. And he's like, I don't know. You better show me how you're real. And he gives them some meal in front of them. The angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord devours it in fire. And he keeps saying, go do this. And then he gives them 10,000 men. And, and uh, actually it's coming down. He, he has more than that, but comes down to 10,000 men. Says, That's too many. So go by the river. You guys have heard the story, right? He's left with 300. And you could speculate as to if the 300 were actually ready for battle. That's why they were picked. You know, one hand on the sword, one hand lapping up water versus the others that were putting their heads in the water drinking. I would think in reverse that the ones that were just lapping up water were the ones that were more the misfits. And the ones putting their head in the water is because they knew this might be the last time we drink water before we tear apart that enemy. That's just, again, me speculating a little bit. But I just know the book of Judges is all about God having his name made known through impossible situations, through the least likely to accomplish his glory. So if you're here and you think, man, I'm, I'm not any of these great judges, actually you may be more like them than you realize. God can use you in great ways. The problem comes when the scandal happens. And if you look in the book of Judges, there is great victory that happens over the Midianites. And so much so, I want to direct your attention with me to chapter 8 of Judges. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They didn't have a king. There's no king in the land. You have obviously shined above all. We will make you king. This is what he says. Gideon said to him, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That was the right thing to say. But you know what's interesting? He goes on to say, but by the way, why don't you give me some of your gold earrings and gold stuff that you have? And he makes a gold ephod, which is just something a priest would wear so that you could connect with God with all the 12 stones of the 12 tribes. He's kind of setting himself apart from everybody else, and it ended up being a very thing that the children of Israel worshipped. And this was so interesting to understand his heart. Look at chapter 8 in verse 29. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, which is the same as Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons and his own offspring. For he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. What does that mean? Why call out the name of one of the 70? The name Abimelech means, my father is king. You get it? Don't, no, no, don't call me king. No, I won't be, no, my kids won't rule over, rule over you, but I'm going to name my kid dad's king. 
just to kind of rub it in there. And there's that cycle. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and here we go back to it again. And that guy, Abimelech, ends up wreaking havoc in all of Israel and being a problem. And it is just so depressing to watch it go on. So what contributes to this cycle? Why do we find ourselves fighting with life-besetting sin? Why do we keep going back to the same thing? When we cry out to God, we're like, this time for sure, I mean it, I'm, I'm serious about it. I'll give you this as what I think in, in a reason. There's a lack of leadership. You'll notice that one of the contributions to the cycle would be found in Judges 17, verse 6. This is the beginning of the end, the epilogue. And you'll see in this text a repeated phrase, there was no king in Israel. So there is a lack of of leadership, knowing who's going to take us to where we need to go. It's just a simple truth. No king in Israel becomes a real big problem. And the second big problem is, and and I'm suggesting to you, that some of you may be caught in the cycle of failure, and you're still in that cycle because you're desperate to find a way out, but you're not finding anyone that's helping you. So I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm going to show you who can help you. And I'm calling out to those of you that are saying, Pastor Jason, look, the deal is, I I appreciate what you're saying. I'm not really struggling with any life-besetting sin that I know of. I'm going to be open and and honest, and God could reveal that all that's good. Then I'm saying to you, then you need to be that kind of leader, empowered by the Spirit to help people out. Okay? But the lack of leadership is a big deal. And there's this statement here that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is a truth that is a lack of moral compass. If everyone's just free to do whatever they want, we have a huge problem, and that leads to compromise. It leads to idolatry. It leads to immorality. It leads to violent disunity when everyone does whatever they want to do. I'll put it in simple terms. Philip Graham Riken, City on a Hill, he would say this. This is what happens in a postmodern era. It's radical skepticism. So this is someone, don't disconnect from me, this is someone who's like, I doubt everything I see, because I'm smarter than that. So when you say what you're saying even right now, how do I know for sure that you know what you're talking about? And this constant debate in your mind about, "I, I just don't know if what he's saying is real, and it leads to this radical relativism. You know what? Fine. You have your opinion, I'll have my opinion, let's just all have our own opinions. Let's just live in that land. But don't tell me that your opinion is the right opinion because what right do you have to tell me that? There's no absolute truth. But there is absolute truth. So it's radical skepticism, radical relativism, and this radical narcissism. And this is, of course, the picture of, of the Greek god who dies looking at a reflection of himself in the pond. I'm so beautiful. I'm so beautiful. And our world is full of people that actually love themselves desperately. And when you bring a solution, they're like, no, I'm not going to touch that because that doesn't work for me. And this may be you. You may be struggling with any of these. I'm not asking you to check out when someone preaches. I'm asking you to check in, be careful, listen to what they're saying, match it to the word of God. Be like the Bereans. But I'm talking about if you're skeptical skeptical about everything anyone says, you have a problem. It's called pride. If it's all about relative, you're just trying to fit in. It's the fear of man. In narcissism, it's all about you, and that leads you nowhere fast. And I want to challenge you against it. And this is the case 
for the judges. Now, what we find here uh, also, and this is something Garrett mentioned, there's a failure to pass it on. What we find is everyone's doing whatever they want to do. There's no one leading and no one's passing on the truth. In Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, Joshua dies. Who, t- who trains the next generation? Nobody. And what do we have? A huge problem. And I, I want to highlight how bad of a deal this was, how bad it was getting, okay? Because it was getting really, really bad with the reference to chapter 18, verse 30. So take your Bible, turn over to Judges 18, 30. Now, I know that I'm, I'm doing what I call a deep dive. Maybe it's more like a 30,000 over, uh, foot over flu- flying over the book of Judges. But I'm going to bring you to a verse in 1830 that talks about a particular person. The storyline, if you go back to chapter 17, Micah is a guy who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. His mom realizes 1,100 pieces of silver are missing. Micah says, oh, I did that. Oh, bless you, boy. Because you did that... Uh, thank you for getting honest. He said, yeah, no problem. Let me take the money, and I'll spend some of it on making an idol, and uh, the rest of it I'll invest. He's manipulating all along. He ends up finding a Levite who's disconnected because there's no king in Israel, no leadership, no temple to run to, to find hope and direction towards God. And so Micah says, I'm going to make you my priest. He's like, okay, you're going to provide for everything I need, and I'm going to be your priest and, and help you worship this idol who's a representation of God. Sounds great. Well, all of a sudden, the Danites come in, and they're like, we don't have enough land. Let's conquer a group of people. They find a group of people who are totally clueless that they're not as safe as they think they are. And as they're doing it, they hear a voice of someone, hey, you're a Levite, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a Levite. Are you with Micah and his household? Yeah. Well, our whole tribe wants you to come and lead us as our priest. Really? What's the deal? What's my signing bonus? He gets his signing bonus. He jumps in. I will represent this entire tribe instead of you, Micah, even though, you know, God bless you. I'm going to go do that. So notice this now. Judges 18, verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribes of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. This guy... Joshua, son of Gershom, son of Moses, is the grandson of Moses, the great leader who led them out of the wilderness wandering. Led them out of Egypt, out of the wilderness wandering, into the promised land through Joshua. Do you get what I'm saying? Generationally, even Moses' grandson went away. And I do think it's interesting, too, for those of you that happen to remember our study in the book of Revelation, kind of funny, Judah said to me, Dad, when we go to Family Baptist, please, 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 he asked me nicely, like, what are you going to preach on when you're there? And so I started to give him some ideas. He said, please, whatever you do, don't preach through Revelation again. <laughs> I just didn't understand anything that you were saying. <laughs> Thanks, Judah. But anyway, um, I said it was your age. It cannot be, no. But I want to bring up a point on this one. In Revelation chapter 7, it lists the 144,000 witnesses. And you know what tribe is not mentioned in Revelation 7? The tribe of Dan. Why? I think it's because they're the first tribe to head hardcore into idolatry. 
Now, they are part of the promise in the New Jerusalem that comes down in chapter 21, but they weren't mentioned in the 144,000 because God hates it when people go their own way and reject him and worship other things. And this is kind of sad, too. Because what is the last verse in the book of Judges? Judges 21-25. And what does it say? Oh, it's the same verse we've been reading all along. Yeah, it's repeated from chapter 17 all the way out through these last couple of chapels. chapters. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I'm saying that it's supposed to leave us kind of wondering what's our solution. You get what I'm saying? Even if you looked at how those last chapters are put in the book, Many believe, if Samuel was the one who orchestrated this book, that he actually took accounts from what would have better fit in the earlier chapters in Joshua. So actually what happens in chapters 17 to the end, it's not chronological. He's actually thematically saying everyone is doing whatever they want to do and they're not following a leader. This is a problem. So what is our solution? There is a solution. If we look at identifying the cycle, and you can see that at the beginning of that ESV overview of the book, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. We know this idea of what contributes to the cycle. It's this idea of not totally conquering and not having this pass on to the next generation, right? And in this not passing on to the next generation, I'm doing my own thing and going whatever way I think is important And how do we break the cycle? You break it in this way. Find that perfect leader, follow him completely, and pass on what you receive to the next generation. I'm going to give you, as I'm landing this plane, okay, I'm going to give you just a couple verses that I hope encourages your heart because I want you to know who that perfect leader is. That perfect leader, you need to find him. I'm going to introduce you to him. It's Jesus Christ. Look at these verses. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I want you to know that that perfect leader is Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You need to find him, and I'm introducing you to him. It's Jesus. But once you find him, you got to be all in. Follow him completely. Find him? Okay, some of you have already found him. How are you doing with the following him? Listen to what the scripture says about following him. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, highlighted daily, and follow me. Some of you need to get honest about the fact that you have not been daily following him because life has gotten crazy busy. And I'm calling you as a fellow follower of Jesus to return to following him all in, surrendered, and returning to spending time with him, to sharing the gospel with those around you, giving, being faithful, reaching out, 
I'm saying all in. He doesn't say half-heartedly, all in. In Matthew 11, 28 through 29, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew, uh, Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Jesus is Lord, Jesus Savior, Lord Master, confess, call it the way God sees it, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no in-between. Pass on what you've received to the next generation. Okay, so find him, perfect leader, follow him, and then if you're in process of doing this, then what are you doing when it comes to making disciples of the nations? What are you doing with that? Who are you impacting? Who's impacting you? Who is someone that is a colleague that's speaking into you, and who are you speaking into? Every one of us as followers of Jesus is supposed to be doing this on a regular basis. And we see this as laid out for us in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Um, Much could be said about that verse, but it's focused in on finding faithful people, not people on the fringes, but people who are ready to be discipled. It's really, really important that you follow that line of thought. And then we, we see also in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, uh, 4, 15 through 16, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And I just think that one's fascinating because Paul is known for saying, hey, watch me, do what I do. What a terrifying thought. How many of you would be willing to say that to anyone else in this room? Hang out with me for a week. Do whatever I do. That's how you follow Jesus. Right? That's what we need to be willing to do. It's not an arrogant thing. It's because Paul was following hard after Christ himself. So very simply, break the cycle of sin by finding that perfect leader, following him completely, and passing along what you have received from him to the next generation. What's God calling you to do today? Maybe it's come to him and start that cycle being broken. I mean, break those chains. You can receive Jesus right now just as Mike received Jesus in my office a couple weeks ago. If you say, I've already received him, are you following him daily? And if you're saying, yeah, then are you passing on what you've received to that next generation? Let's pray together. Father, we need your help, and we thank you for providing it through your Holy Spirit. Bless this church family as they identify with me that you, Jesus, are our perfect leader. You're worthy to be followed. And what you have said to us, we should all take and pass on to others. So do a work in our midst. Change us. Become, help us become more like Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.